So I did a lot of praying and thinking about what to <clears throat> start a, a ministry time at a church, uh, what, what kind of first things to preach through. And all that kept coming to me was uh, two things, um, just to focus on Scripture and to focus on prayer. Uh, so I was, I was happy this morning that the first thing I got to do with you is that pastoral prayer time. The first thing I got to do is stand up and pray with you. I mean, I said who I was. But after that, the first thing I got to do is uh, pastoral prayer. Uh, and I think it's just beautiful. And uh, we're going to do a two-week uh, kind of mini small series uh, on the prodigal son uh, story of Jesus, which thank you for reading. Um, this week is going to be focusing on the younger brother in the story, the one that actually left. Um, and then next week is going to be uh, a special Sunday. It's an installation Sunday. So we have our Pacific Southwest Conference superintendent will be joining us, and he will be preaching on whatever it is he's preaching on. Uh, but that will be a special service, and I will say uh, some vows, uh, so to speak, in front of you all as your pastor, and you will all say stuff back to me, and after that, we'll be married. <laughs> and uh, it's going to feel a little bit like that, so please show up to our wedding. Uh, come back. And then the following week, we'll be uh, focusing on the older brother in the story, the second half uh, of that story. Uh, but before we do, let's, let's enter into prayer. Lord God, I pray that you would bless uh, the words that I speak, that they wouldn't be words from me, but directly from you. Uh, I pray that they also wouldn't fall uh, just simply on human ears uh, for understanding, but that they would sink uh, deep within, uh, that you would bring uh, the good news of who you are uh, into reality, into people's lives, and uh, that you would bring uh, conviction, if conviction is needed, and that you would bring true repentance and turning back to you. Lord, we give you this time in the name of your Son. Amen. I got a little shelf there. So I love the parables of Jesus. Uh, so Jesus uh, has this amazing way of going through um, and telling these stories through Scripture of just kind of everyday things. Stories of a person who lost a coin. Uh, agricultural stories of a sheep uh, that has run away. And, uh, but he has this amazing thing of telling kind of a normal story and then making it very deep and very profound. Um, and this is, this is truly one of my favorites. Um, but before we get into it too far, it's important to look at context. And I was a history major in college, uh, and in history, context is everything. So uh, we're going to look at the context uh, of this text, which is at the beginning of the chapter. So uh, Luke 15, 1 through 3, says this. Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And then Jesus told them this parable. So a little bit of the setting here. So in Jesus' day, there's a lot of uh, different types of religious people. 
uh, different kind of categories. But the group that we actually see surrounding Jesus here is what's called tax collectors and sinners. So these tax collectors are a group of people that are actually seen as traitors um, because they're collecting taxes for Rome. And, and the Roman Empire is an occupying force in their land. So these are Jewish people that are collecting money from Jewish people and they're giving it to the enemy. So that, that's part of the reason uh, that they're like the lowest of the low of society here. So tax collectors and then this broad category that is just called sinners. Um, but these are the people that are focused around Jesus here. Um, they're all Jewish by birth, but they're people that in one way or another have been cut off from the religious center of society. There's something in their lives or something in the way they live that just makes it so that in their culture they aren't uh, good religious folks, if you will. They're not uh, the insiders, they're the outsiders. They're the kind of people that good religious folks, if you will, uh, try not to associate with. They try not to be near, but they're also, we read here, the kind of people that have gathered around Jesus. And Jesus is loving them. And Jesus is caring for them. And as he loves them and as he cares for them, more and more of these tax collectors and sinners have gathered near to him. Now, there's other people here too. So in the back is this group called the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. So these are the good religious people. These are the church folks, if you will. These are the people who kind of do things the right way and they're proud of it. And uh, they don't associate with the kind of people that Jesus is associating with. And as they look, uh, they look in judgment. Um, This is not something that the church is immune to. Anymore. I haven't been here very long, so I'm not talking about each of you, but I don't know you yet. But I can just broadly say this is not something that we are immune to, are we, church? They are standing in the back, they are looking in judgment, they are critiquing, and they are looking from their own sense of self-righteousness down on other people, and they mutter to themselves this quote, this man... Speaking about Jesus, this man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. You see, their approach to sinners, to this broad category, their approach is to distance themselves as much as possible. Um, So back in their day, and and sadly sometimes in our own, um, they treat this other group of people like they could contaminate them if they get near them. So it's, it's better to stay far away and to leave them over there because it's, it's almost like going into a place that, that is really like filthy and dirty, that if I get near them, what if it rubs off on me? What if their sin becomes like our sin and, and then I'm like icky because I'm by them? And the issue here is that this doesn't come from a place of love. This comes from a place of judgment, right? Um, These religious people, 
see themselves as kind of the gatekeepers of society. They are the ones who get to say who is in and who is out. And these people, these sinners and these cactus, are clearly out in what is Jesus doing? Crazy Jesus. What are you doing eating with them, meeting with them, teaching them? You're supposed to be with us. You're supposed to be with us, good religious folks. Not with them. And before you start to look too bad upon them, realize that all societies through all time have had their respectable people and they have had their outsiders. Our society is no different. Societies all the way through the ages are no different. Every high school is no different. Every workplace is no different. Every church is no different. They have their outsiders and they have their insiders. And part of the way I can stay an insider is by distancing myself from the outsiders. So part of the way that I remain here in this this nice comfortable place that I want to be with my friends and my people is by making sure that they stay there. And that is why they are angry. And that is why they're muttering to themselves. Because Jesus is just kind of messing things up here. He's supposed to be like us. He's a teacher of the law. But he's talking to them. You know, I would guess, uh, and I, I don't think it's too much of a guess, that here in this room we have people that might self-identify in both categories. If you were to just... Uh, broadly put yourself, we have people here who have messed up in their lives. People who have lived a part of their life um, where they feel like they are the outsiders of society. We have people here who uh, have lived very respectable lives. And not that there's anything wrong with that, but pride is wrong. And the pride that comes with that to think, I've lived a respectable life and therefore I can look down upon other people. Um, well, I, I won't tell you what Jesus says, but I'll tell you in a little bit. He answers them. <laughs> you know, it reminds me um, of this, this situation. So in, in central Illinois where uh, Susan and I most recently come from. We're both uh, from Minnesota originally, but, but my last church was in the middle of Illinois. And Illinois is very agricultural. And one thing they have a lot of is pigs. There's a lot of hogs in Illinois. Um, and a lot of hog farms. And if you've ever spent any time on a hog farm, uh, it's, it's kind of like going over here and being by this. It rubs off on you. You leave a hog farm, and you still smell like a hog farm. No offense to any hog farmers here, but you can't get it off you. And that, that's, that's the sadness of the snare, is that they're not looking at how, uh, from where I'm at, how can I love somebody else? How can I bring them in? How can I draw them closer to Christ? They're treating them like the hog farm. They're treating them like the place that if you go, it's going to, Get you all icky. Now, at some point, you leave a hog, you take a shower immediately. You can't help it. But we don't get contaminated by being near people who are hurting. 
We don't get contaminated by getting close to the, to the harder parts of our society. And we don't become more righteous by standing apart from that and by doing this nice little comfortable thing that we call church. Now, I like church. I'm a church-going person. I think it's great. But a big part of what we're called to do is not to separate, but it's to get close. Right? Amen? Good. Just making sure you're all tracking. So Jesus answers them. He hears the muttering in the back of these religious leaders. And remember what they said. They said, he welcomes sinners and he eats with them. He's teaching those people. Now, Jesus, being Jesus, knows that they said that, and he knows they were going to say it before they said it, and he has an answer. And he answers them by telling them three parables. Remember in the beginning I said these are just simple stories that have profound meanings. The first one he tells them we commonly call the parable of the lost sheep. So our our scripture just tells us Jesus... um, spoke to them, and he said, and then we're just right into it. Parable of the lost sheep. Someone has a hundred sheep, and one of them gets lost. Doesn't that person leave the 99 sheep to seek after the one? And when he finds the one, doesn't he rejoice? And then there's this quote, and I want you to listen to this in context. So imagine you're the Pharisee, or you're the teacher of the law, and this is what Jesus says. He says, I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who don't need to repent. Ouch. Right? Ouch. Uh, these are the same religious leaders that put him on trial later, later in the book. I don't, I don't want to like spoil the ending. But... <laughs> It, it adds, it gets there, right? Then he immediately goes into another one, the parable of the lost coin. Someone has 10 silver coins, and they lose one. This person turns the whole house over trying to find this one coin, and when they do, they are excited that they found their lost coin. And he says this quote, In the same way, I tell you, there is more rejoicing in the presence of angels over one sinner who repents. So these stories seem simple, right? I don't think I need to draw the connections, but I think you all get what's going on here. These are not about coins. These are not about sheep. These are about humans. These are about people created in the image of God and other people who are rejecting them. So both of these talk about repentance. And and I think that's a nice big church word. We talk about repentance. Um, What repentance basically means in Scripture is uh, that you've been journeying in one direction, and to repent means to turn around. So if I'm journeying this way, and let's say God's over there, oh, I have a nice hope sign. Wonderful. I didn't even plan that. God's over by the hope sign. And, and when I repent, it means I turn from what I'm doing, and now I'm turning back to God. And the reason I love this is because it's journey language. 
It's not like decision language. It's that I turn back and now I'm walking back towards God. So that's what he's saying. There's more rejoicing in heaven over a sinner who's, who's walking on their ways and then they turn around and they walk back to God than to all these people that think they're just walking towards God the whole time. And then he immediately goes into the third one and, and it was read for you earlier. The parable of the prodigal son. It starts in verse 11. It says, Jesus continued. There's our hint. So it's tied to the other stuff. There's your hint. There was a man who had two sons. Now let's pause there. This man represents God. That's what's going on here. This man is God, and he has two sons, and the sons represent two different ways that humans have chosen to live their lives in relation to God. So there's a son for each of these two ways. So let's try to listen to the story beneath the story here. Verse 12, the younger one, the younger son, says to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Now I guarantee you at this point the tax collectors as well as the rest of the crowd, were shocked. This is so culturally inappropriate. It's inappropriate in our day. I mean, this is shocking. So this younger son, he says to his father, give me my inheritance now, even though that you're alive. Now, I've heard of people who have, uh, in, in kind of an evil place, have waited for someone just to pass away because they were just waiting for the inheritance. This is a whole different level. He says, you are better off to be dead. I don't want you around. I don't want you uh, in charge of my life. I don't, I don't want to live near you. I don't want to do anything. And the younger brother here in, in their society would have been entitled to one-third of, of everything the father had. The older brother, uh, because of their society, would have, had, would have gotten two-thirds. So this is one-third of all of the property, all of the animals, all of everything. And he says, I wish you were dead. I wish you would just leave me alone. Uh, and you'd be better off to me that way. And the father, in possibly equally as shocking of a way, uh, doesn't say, hey, get out of here. In his hurt and in his grief, he obliges. Great cost to himself. Imagine splitting up a third of your property and being able to give it away, or a third of all you have. I mean, this is not uh, a simple task. And I, I think um, what Jesus is reflecting on here is the creation story. So that's what he's getting at here. And, and the religious leaders and the teachers of the law, they would have got it because they're the religious leaders and the teachers of the law. But us, living this many years later, we don't always see it. But what's going on here is that God created everything, and it was good. And he placed humanity in it, and he had them as, as stewards over it, and they were given the job of taking care of it, but it wasn't enough for them. And they rejected God, and they took his good creation as their own, and they did with it as they wanted, apart from God. They took his creation and it was costly to God. It hurt. Fractured 
relationships. It continues in verse 13. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had. And he set off for a distant country. And there he squandered his wealth in wild living. And after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he wasted everything he had. And then the circumstances of life knocked him down even farther. We've heard this story many times. Um, Some of you have lived this story. Others, all you need to look at is friends and family and relatives. And you have seen people that when they're down on their luck, the circumstances of life have knocked them down even further. And they can't dig out of it. They can't get out. It's like this cycle. And they're stuck. And that's where we find the younger brother. He was doing things his own way, but his own way wasn't working out for him. So church, have you been doing things your own way? And how's that working out for you? Now, it may be fine. I mean, that's a lot of people's stories. They do things their own way for years, for sometimes for their entire lives. They, they try to just seek after their own things. Whether it's wealth, or it's parties, or it's drinking, or it's, or it's this hookup culture. They just seek after the pleasures of life. But it'll catch up. And sooner or later, people will crash. And they'll hit the bottom. And what often happens is the circumstances of life. Something happens around and it knocks them down even more. And they find themselves like we find the younger son here in verse 15. So he went and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country. Remember, he moved far away. Who sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. And he longed to fill his stomach with the pods the pigs were eating. But no one gave him anything. In the Old Testament law, pigs are considered an unclean animal, right? So uh, for, for a young Jewish man, and, and certainly to Jesus' original audience, uh, this is the lowest of the low. And I mentioned about being around like hog farmers. I've never wanted their food. If you're around hogs and you want to eat that food, you're in a bad place. You're, you're beyond a bad place. You've hit rock bottom and then you continue to fall. You cannot get lower than wanting to eat the pig's food. Then you're, okay, so that is what Jesus is saying. This is disgusting. But when he hits the bottom, he thinks back onto his life, and he remembers his father. So children of God, I don't know where you're at today. I don't know where each of you are at. 
But if you've been striving, if you've been seeking after your own things for far too long, and you've come to this place where you've reached the bottom and you somehow made it in here today, I want you to know that there's good news. We have a Father in heaven that loves each of you dearly. And he wants to have a relationship with you. When we get to verse 17, the younger son here, when he comes to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and I will go back to my father and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. So he came to this realization that the path that his actions had brought him to uh, truly brought him to the lowest place possible. And, and like I talked about earlier about uh, the verses that talk about a sinner repenting, he's been walking in this journey. He's been walking this life focused on his own things, apart from his father. He said, give me what you have and I will, I will take care of my own life. Now, if that doesn't sound like a lot of us in America, I don't know what does. I will just take care of my own life. I will walk my own way. I will create my own path. And if anyone gets in my way, maybe I'll just bulldoze them over. But this is who I am. And he comes to this place where he's broken down. And he's humble. And he might just be humble enough that he's able to turn around back to his father. And enter onto this long journey that brings him home. And he's got a good plan. Because he realizes that he is not in a place to come home and demand anything. He is not at a place to come home and say, hey, just make me your son again. Daddy-o? <laughs> like, any, any earthly father is going to be like, no. We're not dealing with an earthly father. Um, but he begins this long journey home, and his plan is that he's going to say, uh, just make me one of your servants. I don't, I don't need to be your son. I don't need to be anything, but just make me one of your servants. And it, the reason is because his father's good. His father treats his servants well. They don't strive to eat after the pig food. So he says, I'll head home. And now is truly uh, to the Pharisees, to the teachers of the law, this is the shocking moment of the story. So what the son said to the father earlier, that was shocking. This is truly shocking for them. It says, but while he was still long off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him and ran to his son and threw his, his arms around him and kissed him. Why did the father see him? Because he was looking. Very good. <laughs> the father never stopped looking for the son. Just as our heavenly father never stops looking for us. And while in our own logic, we would like this son, I think a lot of us, 
uh, myself included in my, my sadder times, would like this son to have to walk all the way back. We'd like him to turn around and have to do this hard work of walking all the way back. But that's not what we read. We read that he's turned around, and as he's coming, the father, and this is the shocking part, the father runs to him. Imagine this. These are people wearing robes. He lifts up his robe. He exposes his, his elderly man legs. <laughs> and, and he runs. The father runs. I've seen my dad run like three times my whole life. And it was because the dog got up. <laughs> but he lifts up his leg and he runs to his son. He's the one that's doing the humble part. And he puts his arms around him and he hugs him. The son hasn't even said anything yet. Remember, he rehearsed his whole lines. He had it all down. He knew what he was going to say. He hasn't even said anything yet. And he threw his arms around him and he kissed him. And he hugs him. And the son finally gets to say uh, his, his planned out words. He says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be your son. And right there he gets cut off. He doesn't even say the rest of it. He says, I'm no longer worthy to be your son. But the father said to his servant, so he's just like, no, no, no. The father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robes. Remember, he's wearing the robes for when he worked with the pigs. He said, take off those robes. Bring him the best robes. Put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. This ring, this is what showed that you were a son. This is what made you like an heir. This, this is a big deal. He doesn't say just, just give him better robes than this. Because that's what a good person would do. You wouldn't leave him like that barefoot in these nasty robes. So he brings up good robes. He brings up a sandal, but he gives him the ring. And the ring shows that he's fully accepted back into this family. He says, bring a fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead. And is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. As I said before, it continues on to talk about the older brother, and we'll do that in two weeks. But this is what we sing about when we sing songs like Amazing Grace. We sing the songs that we sang earlier. This is the grace that we are talking about. It's not a grace that says, yeah, go ahead and turn around and walk all the way back. And then once you get there, maybe we'll let you in. This is a grace that runs to us, lifts up the robes, runs, hugs us. Now, some people have said to me uh, during my time in ministry, and I think they're well-meaning, and I think they, um, I think they mean well, but... A lot of people have told me I have a really hard time identifying with the younger brother. I don't know if you've ever thought that. But they, they say, um, you know, something to the effect of like, maybe my cousin, my cousin who like left home and like went to the big city and totally did that wild living thing and uh, was in the party scene and, and was into drug. Like, my cousin, now that's a prodigal son, you know, and if they come back to the church, we're going to celebrate. 
But the trick here is that often we're both. We're often the sinners and the tax collectors sitting at the feet of Jesus. And at the very same time, we're the Pharisees and the teachers of the law sitting in the back. And it might be different areas of your life. Um, But often we find ourselves in both camps. The Bible gives us this beautiful test to see what the character of God is like. And we fail daily. I guarantee you, you fail daily. There. Congratulations. Um, In Galatians chapter 5, 22 through 23, uh, famous verse, it talks about the fruit of the Spirit. So what's going on here is is it says a life uh, lived with God, you're like a tree. And and if you're if you're with God, you're gonna you're gonna have a certain kind of fruit that you're gonna bear as a tree. If you're not with God, your fruit's gonna look different than that. So if you have an area of your life that you're not with God, the the, the fruit, the product of your life is gonna look a certain way. And if you're not with God, it's gonna look a different way. And how do we know uh, how close we are? Is, uh, it says, look at the fruit. So look at the fruit of your own life to see how you're doing with God. Now, the fruit of the Spirit described here is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's the kind of fruit that we should be producing. So in case you still think you have it all together, in your relationships with people, even people that drive you nuts, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. How how are you measuring up? Anyone want to share At work, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. At school, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. When the line at the grocery store is incredibly long and it's going to take you way too long to get out of there, Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. When somebody not from around here doesn't know the first thing about driving in the mountains. (laughs) Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. When the new pastor doesn't do things the way that we've always done them. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. When it's 3 a.m. in the morning... 
and the baby will not stop crying. This is where I fail all the time. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. When you're at the DMV, (laughs) and like when we were there uh, this last week, it was standing room only. And you knew the line was at least two hours long. Love, joy. You want to see a more miserable group of people. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. When your spouse has touched on your last nerve. When your kids have touched on your last nerve. When your parents have touched on your last nerve. When your teachers touched on your last nerve. When your boss has touched on your last nerve. Or when that neighbor next door like stacked wood and it's totally a foot on your property. (laughs) And they've touched on your last nerve. Love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Now, if that is our test, we're all walking this way in a few areas, right? It's easy in the beginning of the story to say, I think I might be one of the Pharisees. And that that might be true. We'll talk about that in two weeks. But for this... We all have areas of our life that we are not walking towards God. That we are not walking in step with Him. Ways that we are not showing these fruits of the Spirit in relationships and people that we are uh, around and, like I said, just driving. Um, We fall short daily. And I think a big part of what we often need, uh, like these Pharisees and the teachers of the law, is is we need to put down our own self-righteous pride. We need to put that aside and to turn around in, in a humble spirit and to open our arms and, and know that we have a God that promises to run to us, to hug us, to be with us to restore us into a right relationship. And not just today, (laughs) tomorrow again, and then again. That is the crazy, extreme love that Jesus is talking about here, that the Father has. That's what's so radical about this entire story. Our God is good. Our God is loving. Our God is amazing, and I guarantee you this, our God is waiting for you, and he hasn't stopped looking. Whether it's in this area or that area, whatever area of your life, our God is waiting for you to turn around. 